intensely, and you and I, I didn't stay in a long time, so, and there was no Facebook or anything like that back then, so I remember we used to handshake each other and go, listen, I'm never going to see you again, have a good life. I mean, literally, that's what we would say to each other. I remember saying that to somebody, never going to see you again, hope you have a good life, you know, and, and here's a guy that, like, you share countless hours with and really in a lot of pain, actually, for a lot of it, and, uh, and it's a very strange thing, and, and for the Lord to put me back together with some of the, the people that I served with, one of the neat things that happened this past week that, that uh, creates this moment of reflection for me, it's as if the Lord's trying to resolve out things of when I was younger and maybe misunderstood things or didn't understand things, is he paired me up this week with my squad leader. Now, might sound like nothing to you, but at 19 years old, I got out of the school of infantry. Uh, I had four days to get, I got desert camis, and within four days of coming out of the school of infantry, I was immediately deployed in what they call a joint task force mission. A joint task force mission for us was going down by the border of El Paso, Juarez type area, and they would uh, uh, we were attached to our India Company, 3rd Battalion, 9th Marines, 3rd Platoon. I would meet a man named John Kozowski. I say a man, uh, he was 21. <laughs> he was married. That seemed old to me, right? It was 19. Like, dude, you're married already? 21? Oh, my gosh. You're like, your life's over. You know, that's how it felt. And, and uh, he didn't look old. You know, he'd look like he, like he couldn't, it wouldn't matter if he shaved or not. You know, I mean, it looked so boyishly faced, uh, which he still is pretty good at looking that way. And... He, uh, he showed me how to be a Marine in the fleet. And the neat thing this week uh, was I spent all week in a tent, tent with John Kozowski. Now, the neat thing about that is he served, while I was there, he, had already, he was already in two and a half years. So I only had him for another year and a half before he would leave and I would become a squad leader and learn and take the things that he had taught me and pass it down to another generation of Marines. So it was super neat for me this past week to spend an entire week in a tent with my old squad leader who taught me the ropes of what it was to be a Marine. So it, it, great, it was some great conversation. We talked about the old days, about the funny things of sitting in foxholes and, and playing war and fighting real war. You know, it, just, it, was a, it was a really cool time of reflection. And I tell you what, it just made me think about, like, I hope every, everybody has a, a moment that, like that in their life where they can revisit something and maybe find peace with some things. You know, for me, this has been the last two years for the Marine Corps and my past with the Marine Corps and the combat stuff with the Marine Corps. It's been finding peace with my past. And uh, it's a really cool opportunity. And I pray that everybody experiences. It's not comfortable. It's never comfortable walking 12 miles with 40 pounds on your back. But uh, it was fun. It was fun. But I did. I greatly missed every, every one of you. Uh, but there's just something in me. I have a need for adventure. I don't know if that's you, but I do. Uh, I'm reminded at all times uh, that adventure just means uncertainty. Adventure just means uncertainty. So adventure is not just always a trip. Sometimes an adventure is just your life. Because you don't know what tomorrow holds. That's the adventure of life. Amen? Amen. Well, man, we're going we're gonna, to... Uh, I, I listened to a little bit of what Mike was uh, uh, preaching this past week, and I heard him. He was going to start in on Judas, but God woke him up in the middle of the night, told him that I already had that one called, so he couldn't preach that. And, uh, uh, and so I'm thankful to the Lord that he spoke to him because I am happy to preach on 
Judas uh, this morning. So we're going to go back into the Gospel of Mark. We're going to press forward back into this text. We're going to pick it up around chapter 14, around verse 10. I don't know about you, but we only got a couple more chapters. The end is near. The end is near. All the pieces of the puzzle are starting to get into the right places. Good or bad, the future for Jesus, the prophetic words spoken by the prophet Isaiah, all of that is about to take place. All of it is about to take place, and we're in Mark chapter 14. Say amen if you're there. All right. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priests to arrange to portray Jesus to them. They were delighted when they heard why he had come. They had promised to give him money. So we began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. We're going to stop there. I don't think we need to go on any further. I think all that we need lies right there in the text. I know it's like we're never going to get the end if I only pick two scriptures to get us through the next uh, Sunday. But there's a lot to talk about here. And I'll be, I'll be honest, man, this, is a, this seemed heavy for me. We're having to talk about something that is heavy. We're talking about Judas. And I, I can tell you this. I've yet to find somebody really in the Bible Belt who hasn't heard of Judas. Isn't it ironic that even those who don't go to church know who Judas is? Right? I mean, even the unsaved, right? The people who don't care about church, don't care about Jesus, even they know who Judas is. Uh, and if you aren't familiar all that, even with the gospel and with Jesus, there's a pretty good chance you just heard the name because the name Judas has become synonymous with that of a traitor or a betrayer, right? It's somebody like a, a friend or whatever that's stabs you in the back. Yeah, they're just a Judas. You know that. I mean, it's just, it's just how it is. And so here we find ourselves, how do we come to the origins of such a name or such a legacy uh, this morning? And I want to discuss what it takes this morning to become a Judas, becoming a Judas. So let's just start from birth. We'll just start it right there. We'll keep it simple. No one is born a Judas. No one is. All right. It's not like they're born that way from birth. It's not like Judas. Oh, I can't wait till he grows up and betrays the son of man. You know, it's not like that. It's not like that's what their mom had hopes for. Nobody is born a Judas. Becoming a Judas is a decision that's birthed from the desires of your heart. No way around that one. I'm positive that when Judas was born, his mother never planned on his life uh, going or ending the way it did. No mother goes, I can't wait till my son grows up and kills themselves. Nobody thinks like that. Nobody thinks their son's going to grow up and be the betrayer. Nobody thinks like that. And I'm sure Judas grew up like any other Jewish boy. I'm sure at 13 he had his bar mitzvah. Congratulations, you're, being, uh, you're becoming a man. I'm sure he helped around the house. I'm sure he helped his dad trying to learn a trade you know, I'm, I'm, I'm positive that he lived a normal, pretty much uh, uh, Jewish life. He most likely witnessed the struggles of what it meant to survive in, in, in a world with Roman oppression and harsh taxes were enforced. I mean, he saw the ups and downs of that as a child. He grew up in it. Every Jew felt the weight of that. So I can't imagine that Judas is actually excluded from any of that. He experienced the same thing Peter experienced in Paul and and John and all the other apostles, right? 
So I'm sure all of this weighed on him as a child. Now, as a parent, you really never know how the hardships you face in life are going to show up in your children. You don't get to pick that, right? No matter what you go through as a parent, your children watch you with a bird's eye view. And how you handle it is absolutely influential. That's, that's for sure. But you really can never know what toll it takes on them. For some kids that grow up poor, their heart reacts in a way that is super appreciative. They're just happy to have anything because they've grown up poor. They don't have much, right? Their brain somehow connects humility with poverty and they can live simple while still kind of appreciating everything they have as a blessing, right? But there's some people that live in the same circumstances, right? They grow up uh, resenting poverty. They just grow up. They hate it. They see it as a curse. They, they grow bitter. And without any kind of other moral or ethical compass in their life, it just leads them down a treacherous road. You can have two kids in the same issues and how they react to it are just night and day. In our scripture, we're given a solid image of Judas from the start. He was someone that was counted as a disciple of Jesus. He is one of the original 12. This is important, guys. According to Peter in Acts 1.17, Judas, this is out of Peter's own mouth, Judas is one of us and shared in the ministry with us. So before we get any ideas that Judas was some sort of outsider in the ministry of Jesus, that is not true. Maybe not the most wisest choice, right? How about I do this? Let's go get the felon that's got a accounting issue in his uh, felony rap sheet and let's make him the treasurer of the ministry. How many are for that, right? You're like, Pastor, we'll just vote you out. <laughs> you know, like, that's not going to happen. We're not going to allow somebody who steals money being in control of the money. Yet, that's what happened in Jesus' ministry. Judas was in charge of the finances there. It's funny how it all works out with the Lord. Judas was one of them. He was, and, and here's the thing. Jesus was absolutely aware of what was going on inside Judas. There's never a point where the scriptures say that Jesus is blindsided by Judas. Matter of fact, he knows it. There's a time where he speaks to it when nobody else knows it. And he speaks to it and they're all wondering what he's talking about. But Judas knows who he's talking about, right? It's interesting. G Judas had his place. Even though Jesus knew that he had issues, that, that there was all these things that are were lying in the, in, in, in the heart of Judas, he was still okay, right? Even the, some of the apostles were aware, right? In our last message, we covered the woman who anointed the feet of Jesus, and it was in that moment that John exposes what the rest of the apostles already knew about Judas. We covered it from Mark's or Peter's perspective through the Gospel of Mark, but in John chapter 12, 6 through 7, in the same time frame, in the same scene, it says, But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And then John says this, he made sure to put it in there, not that he cared for the poor, he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. They all knew it. They all knew. You know, in leadership, one of the things we're going to bring up on Wednesdays, I'm just going to give you a tidbit, I didn't put this in my notes, but let me give you a tidbit. You know why it's allowed? You know why it's okay? Because Jesus was okay with it. I remember a story a man named San Chan tells on leadership one time. He says, I went to a church. They had about 80 employees or 80 people that were paid staff for the church. He said, the pastor says, I think there's some struggling going on in my leadership. And I, 
can't figure out where it's at. It stifled the growth of my leaders. So Sam Chan comes up over here and he goes, well, let's do this. We're going to hand out a piece of paper and we're going to do a secret ballot. I'm going to hand out a piece of paper to all 80 individuals and I want them to write a name that if one person had to leave, one person had to leave, that it, it, it would, if it would change everything, which person would it be? Don't you know that 79 people wrote the same name? Well, why, why didn't the pastor, if, you know, when the pastor saw it, he was like, well, how come they never said anything? Because, pastor, you were okay with it. And they were going to follow their leader. As long as the leader was okay with it, the others followed. Jesus was okay with it. So they followed. They knew about it. But Jesus was okay with it, and Jesus knew about it. Everything is playing its part. Everything is playing its part. Jesus was very aware. John and the disciples were aware. The irony of the ministry of Jesus is that in some ways it's not different from much of the ministry in the church today. We keep thinking, we keep looking for Jesus. Oh, Jesus got the perfect ministry. Mm-hmm. By the way, Jesus' ministry would have been a scandal because as soon as they found out that a thief was in there taking charge of the tithe money, that would have been the end of Jesus' ministry today. There are some amongst us... Uh, the interesting thing here is that uh, Judas in this moment, they all know he's a thief. But in this moment, what does he say? Man, this thing would have been better off given to the poor, right? Now, unless you're in the inward fold of Jesus's ministry, which, by the way, you're getting the uh, armchair quarterback version where you get to know all the details, the juicy details on the back end. But if all you heard from the outside looking in, right, is that Judas must obviously care about the poor. Look how concerned he is over the poor. And there are some of us that are very, very much pious in public, but inwardly they're a lot like Judas. Oh, they say they care about the poor with their mouth, but with their heart, that's a totally different thing. They don't really care about the things that Jesus necessarily cares about. But outwardly, it's hard to see that. Judas was a fake. He outwardly and publicly seemed like he was all about the agenda of Jesus. But inwardly, Christianity, his inward Christianity was something that he was looking to benefit from. That's what Christianity was for him. He came to church so that he could benefit from church. He benefited from networking with people. He benefited from his position that it put him in. He became the treasurer, right? And he benefited from the appearance of being close to Jesus. Man, look who I hang around with. You should probably get to know me because I hang around with Jesus. I'm the treasurer for Jesus. You can trust me with money. Sure, I'll take that offering. I'm the treasurer of Jesus. He's able to put that name uh, uh, right next to his. Part of the issue in discussing Judas is our simple desire to just pass this man off like he's some sort of anomaly. Well, you're not a Judas. You never think of yourself as a Judas. Judas is this guy who betrayed Jesus. It's not you. That he's some, like, like we have this uh, a tendency to make him like some rare man who, whose cowardice is rare. But that isn't true. The sad fact is that we all have a bit of Judas in us. And there are times in our life where we become Judas. This is where the drumbeat starts to happen in this whole thing. We never think that we're this way. We never see it that way. But that doesn't make it untrue. So let's take a look at some of the characteristics of Judas, and I'm going to let you just judge for yourself. I'm just going to throw a couple things that I saw in Judas that I see in us. All right? It's a drumbeat. There's no way around that. When I say a drumbeat, I really mean like a hammer. 
All right, this message is kind of like a hammer because there's no way to disassociate ourselves with Judas. Number one, Judas acted one way publicly, but was another way privately. He acted one way in public and another way in private. Of course, none of you have ever been two-faced. None of you have ever been unauthentic or, or fake, and I say that sarcastic because the one truth that, uh, that we all have is the fact that we've been teenagers at some point. This is where, like you, when you think of yourself as an adult, you're like, yeah, that's right, because I've got sick of two-faced. I would never be two-faced because I hate it. But there was a time when you were a teenager, and I'm pretty sure you were. After being a youth pastor for so many years has taught me anything. It's taught me that, man, God, forgive our teenage years. God, please forgive our teenage years. In learning who we are and what we value, we sometimes will do awful things to each other. It's a part of learning who we are. We gossip about others. Come on, if you're a teenager, that's already true. Already true. It happens. You can't even help it. We lie about others because we don't like them, because we're vengeful, right? We treat people wrong because we don't like them. They're snotty. They're mean. They deserve what they're getting. We call it karma, right? I saw somebody the other day taking a, uh, like a video of somebody that they were laughing at somebody who else that had a wreck because they had passed them a certain way wrong or whatever like that. I get that. That's horrible what they did. That doesn't mean it funny that they wouldn't had a wreck, but that's how we are. It unveils parts of us that we don't like, right? Uh, we act a certain way just so that we'll be accepted. doesn't mean we are that way, but we'll act that way just so other people will say, hey, I accept you. I bring you into the fold. There's simply no human being on the planet that isn't guilty of this. None of us want to be seen this way, so we lie. We put on a persona that is friendly and personal, sympathetic and yet can be apathetic, meaningful and yet revengeful. Our heart is just too wicked. It literally manipulates us into thinking that every lie we tell, every hurtful action we commit is somehow justified. Well, of course I lied. If I'd have told them the truth, man, they would have been so upset that their food tasted like junk. <laughs> of course I, I mean, you know I me, mean? Pastor, like I, I heard a, a, a guy at a leadership conference once that said to pastors, every one of you are liars because every one of you have walked into a house when the food was horrible and said, oh, it tastes great. Why? Because if I told them the truth, it would hurt them. So we lie because we don't want them to be hurt. We, we, we have all kinds of excuses of why we lie. But we lie. And we justify it. Whether it's just because it's what they want to hear or simply more selfishly it positions us into whatever we want. In this way we become Judas. We've all been guilty of acting one way and yet being another. Ask anyone who used to attend church and I promise you one of their top five answers as to why they don't attend church today will be that they've experienced somebody who's talked one way and acted another outside of church. Truth. Come on, whether it's the pastor who preaches on Sunday and lives a life contrary to that throughout the week or the layman who just follows his lead. Either way, when we act one way and behave another, the human heart notices and shoots a warning to our brain to stay away from unstable people. Maybe it's through the life of Judas that James penned in James 1.8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. They hung around each other. Isn't it funny where they got all their lessons from? When you start to uncover some of this is where you start to realize, you know where they learned all this wisdom from? From hanging out with each other. They learned about human behavior from hanging out with other people who were pretty 
scoundrel type individuals. Judas was a scoundrel type individual. I mean, how many of you keep friends like this, by the way? How many of you have unstable friends? You're like, I do, totally unstable. Some of you raised your hands. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> but you probably don't have many, I'm sure, because you know. You know how people like this are looked upon society as a whole. Not even the sinful world thinks this is appropriate behavior. You know that? Now, ungodly people don't want to hang around fake people. You hear that? I mean, even the world knows, man, I wouldn't hang around them. They're a liar. Yeah, but you're a liar. Yeah, but it's different. That's what they'll say. That should be a lesson in and of itself. The next thing for sure in how we become like Judas, Judas struggled with materialism and greed. This should hit close to home. We're American. All right? As soon as you say America, you already got to know materialism and greed are like the forefront, right? Judas saw what the ministry could offer him. He saw that it would open his doors to new prospects and hopefully a better future. In the beginning, it might have even been, you know, truly hopeful and even authentic that it was going to change his life, which I honestly do. I would love to tell you that, like, from the beginning, he was a scoundrel and a villain. I would love to tell you that, that when you meet certain people, that, that that's just how they are from the beginning, but I'm not sure it's that way. I think the human heart, I think Judas saw something in Jesus, the same thing everybody else saw in Jesus. I think he approached the altar and said, Lord, I give you my life, but I think he struggled in the flesh as well. I'd love to tell you it was just so cut and dry, but I don't think it is. I think there's more shades of gray to Judas than I think it is black and white. I think initially he probably started out with a pure motive, like I really want to do right. But the problem is these things that have been in me since birth that I've fostered, right? They've risen to the surface. And when, I, and when the devil came to tempt, he was weak. Either way, his lust for materialism and his financial status or... Hope, uh, uh, this was the things that were going to consume him. Now, the King James translation uses a word to describe Judas that we don't use anymore, and that's too bad, because just saying greedy doesn't really paint the picture. In the King James, it uses the word avarice. It's so, I'm so disappointed. It, you know, the Bible has educated me greater than our literature has. We have such downgraded our literature because we're kind of dumbing down words so that we'll understand them to make it easy. Um, the word avarice is really the more appropriate word. It literally or more specifically refers to wealth and money, period. Not anything else. It's not like he's greedy about anything else. It's specifically money uh, uh, or, or uh, associated with the hoarding of finances, the hoarding of money. Uh, greed actually is uh, more associated with over consumption. By the way, like a little uh, bit of trivia, greed is not a, uh, wasn't the original word that would start out to describe what it was to be hungry or hoarding money. Greed was a word used for food consumption. Like you were a person who ate a lot. You were very greedy about your food. You, you, some of you are like that, right? You don't want nobody eating your fries off your plate, right? How many of you are the person who eat the fries off somebody else's then go get you a whole nother box of fries? Don't lie. Some of you are like that. That's horrible. I pray for joy on a daily basis just because of that. I know who you are. You're the ones eating all the fries in the bag, the leftover fries. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so true, right? You're greedy. You're hoarding the fries. All right? So money and uh, the lust for money, wealth, power, position, this consumed him. Ultimately to the point of no return, right? He's making a deal. He's cutting a deal. It clouded his thoughts. And ultimately his heart begins to conspire, not against Jesus, but against himself. That's what's happening here. 
It's against his own self. Whose demise is it really going to be? His. His own soul. The thing that he's going to struggle back and forth. Listen, Jesus is going to rise from the grave. He's not fooled by what's happening or what's going to happen. Right? This is all playing into his hand. For Judas here, it's going to work against him. Because his conscience is about to bear witness to this. It's not just his, his heart and his lust for these things is going to overtake him. And I want you to think about this deeply. As the psalmist like to say, Selah, which is to say pause and breathe it in. Judas could not be tempted to murder. He could not be tempted to murder Jesus. He was tempted by greed. I'll take payment. I'm not killing him. I will not murder for money. I will sell him to you for money. But I'm not going to kill. I'm not, he's not tempted to murder Jesus. He's tempted literally just by greed. And sometimes we think uh, just because it's not that as bad as it could be that it's somehow okay, right? Well, it's not like I murdered Jesus. I just sold him for 30 pieces. You say that. We, like, we, 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 we act like that's something we wouldn't do. But I think we justify our actions a lot by things. Well, it's not like I did that. All I did was this. And the thing is, is some of you know, like as soon as I'm saying so the way I'm saying it, you, you, you recognize that kind of talk, right? I'm sure G Judas told himself that it wasn't him, right? That this is not him murdering, this is not me murdering Jesus, this is the Pharisees, right? I'm just setting it up. It's not like I murdered Jesus, I didn't nail him to the cross, I just set it up to happen, right? In the end, it's obvious to see how this would eventually lead to his mental demise. So I said, this is not him hurting Jesus, this is him hurting himself. When we lie, when we sin, when we get lost in greed, when we get lost in materialism, we are not hurting Jesus, we are hurting our own soul. And it bears witness against us. Ultimately, Judas would kill himself, right? Which leads us to this last one here, Judas didn't like himself. That seems like such a simple one, right? But... In this way, we're more like, we're so much like Judas. I once, read from, uh, I once read from a book that many Christians find themselves defeated by, and I'm going to quote this, the most psychological weapon that Satan can use against them. This weapon has the effectiveness of a deadly missile. Its name, low self-esteem. Satan's greatest psychological weapon is a gut-level feeling of inferiority, inadequacy, and low self-worth. This feeling shackles many Christians in spite of wonderful spiritual experiences and knowledges of God's word. And although they understand their position as sons and daughters of God, they're tied up in knots, bound by a terrible feeling of inferiority. That pretty much hits the nail on the head. The struggle for us to believe that Jesus loves us is directly tied to our ability to love ourselves. Not the self that you project to everyone else. Listen. Not the one we meet and greet with, but the self that you really are in the recess of your mind. Suicide doesn't happen because Judas was hanging around with people. Suicide happened because Judas is just being alone. And when he has to be alone with himself. The secret sinful thoughts, vengeful thoughts, and shameful thoughts that only you and Jesus know exist. That's where it's happening. When you are alone with yourself. This is also one of the single most reasons for a lack of prayer in the church today. It's hard for corporate prayer to be powerful when private prayer is so subnormal. The reason why we don't even like hanging out, listen, this is the reason why we don't pray. Because, listen, we don't even like hanging out with ourselves, much less expose Jesus to ourselves. 
Listen, I don't like praying by myself because then I'm all alone with myself. And I don't, if I don't like myself, why would I subject anybody else to being with me? So we avoid Jesus by surely just trying to avoid hanging out with ourselves. You ever been that type of person that just don't like being alone? That's why. Why is it so uncomfortable to be alone? Why is it so uncomfortable just to hang out by yourself alone with just your thoughts? If you struggle there, you're going to struggle praying by yourself. Just as Brennan was forced to embrace this, Brennan Manning, we must too. Brennan, he, he shows us the light at the end of the tunnel. In his book, All is Grace, he writes this about this. To feel safe is to stop living in my head and sink down into my heart and feel liked and accepted. Not having to hide anymore or distract myself with books or television or movies or ice cream or whatever comfort foods you're eating or shallow conversation, but staying in the present moment and not escaping into the past or, or projecting into the future, alert and attentive in the now, feeling relaxed, not nervous or jittery, no need to impress or dazzle others or draw attention to myself, un, unself-conscious, a new way of being myself, a new way of being in the world, calm, unafraid, no anxiety about what's going to happen next, just feeling loved and valued, just being together as an end in of itself. This is what we strive for. To be okay with us. Right? First of all, you have to know that Jesus loves you just like you are. You right? You have to know this, right? I can tell you this. Judas never made it here. He never made it to feeling like this. He, uh, his heart had already believed the lie that somehow money was going to solve his self-issue. His materialistic affirmation and his self-worth. And if you're not careful, you're going to find yourself here too. And don't think you can. It doesn't take much. We've coined the phrase today, keeping up with the Joneses for a reason. That's not even a Christian thing. But we get it. We understand it. This is the same thing. All he wanted was to keep up with everybody else. Those 30 pieces, they would set him up so that he could just not be the richest person in town. He just wants to be like everybody else. That's all he wants. Just to keep up with the Joneses, right? It starts simple. It's never like something crazy like, well, if I buy this giant house. Listen, it starts like this. It looks like this today. It starts with needing a new phone every time one comes out. Maybe a new car. Maybe an old car. Maybe, I know for me, a piece of land. Maybe a bigger deer. A big gun, small gun. And the list goes on. And we tell ourselves that those things don't define us, but they do get the best of us sometimes. And sometimes we fall for the trap of thinking we won't be happy without them. Listen, it's terribly human, and it's a blunt truth like a hammer, isn't it? Some of this is just so, it's so true, Lord, we become Judas, right? We see Judas in the apostles who ran when Jesus was crucified. We see it in all his friends. We see it in Peter. Peter becomes Judas when he decides to curse the name of Jesus and act like he doesn't even know him. And in that moment, he's Judas. We see Judas in ourselves, maybe not at first, but only you can know when you've betrayed Jesus. Only you can know when you've dropped your Christianity because it was inconvenient to pay your taxes. Or it wasn't a big deal to ding that car next to you in the parking lot, so you didn't even say anything. I mean, I think we get the idea. 
Listen, if this message, it seems gloomy or dark, it's because it's really just revealing the darkness and depravity of the human heart. To show you your own heart requires diving deep sometimes, right? It's like if you've ever seen deep water exploration. You go down so far, it's so dark. They've never seen light. When you like shine a light down in there, you see how the eyes are blind because they've been in the dark for so long, right? That's just the way it is. When we start to shine lights in dark places, it always comes out gloomy. Like I can always tell, like everybody just gets all gloomy. You know, there's not a whole lot of laughter. There's not a whole lot of excitement because we're talking about Judas. Judas is a, he's a revelatory thing to our heart because as much as we want to say, well, that's Judas, I'm not Judas, but there's sometimes we are. And if we don't recognize those moments, then how do we know when to repent? If we don't recognize those moments, do we know that we're the person who's acting one way in church and another way in public? The Apostle John described this whole idea of what we're doing right now as the light shines in the darkness. And, he, and John said the darkness didn't even comprehend it. And he would uh, later elaborate, not only did it not comprehend the light, it actually rejects it. Nobody wants to believe they're Judas. Even right now, we're already trying to reconcile it, right? Here's the thing, though. It won't stop Jesus from shining. Jesus shines everywhere he goes. And if he enters your heart and he shines in your heart, you better know that he's going to show you the deep, dark things. There's no way you get to feel comfortable about those things. Over and over, Judas experienced this slide. He experienced it when he first began to follow Jesus, and he experienced it at the end. Possibly one of the greatest acts of mercy and love is the scene where Jesus, who is fully aware at this point by the betrayal of Judas, right, leans forward and allows Judas to kiss him. In Matthew, it's pretty straightforward. Matthew 26, 49, and 50. I'll read it real quick. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi. He exclaimed and gave him the kiss. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you've come for. Jesus knew what Judas was doing. Nothing was veiled. So have you ever thought about why he received the kiss? Come on, we just talked about what Judas is. And how we're like Judas. Judas in this end, he's very aware of this. He's very aware Judas is the betrayer. He's coming up. You know he's coming up to kiss you. He's leaning in. You can stop that at any point. By the way, how many of you let that happen? How many of you would let that happen? How many of you, take the person who's ever backstabbed you the worst that you can think of right now that you're trying to like reconcile in your heart that you still like, Jesus, I'm trying to love them, but I got to give them to you. You know that person, right? Now think about them coming up and trying to be all nice and hug on you. Be like, uh-uh, stop right there. I know you don't love me, right? Like, like I, we can, if we picture somebody like that, think about this. Judas comes up to him and is going to kiss him and Jesus doesn't stop it. Rather, he just, he receives it. And it's in this sweet, like, tender moment that we see this kind of neat thing unfold with Jesus. I was thinking so much about this. Telling my wife, like, this is probably the most exciting part of, for me of the message. And I'm pretty manly. So, like, the whole men kissing each other doesn't, like, speak to me. But even though I know culture and them, they're kissing each other on the cheek, that kind of thing. But here's what I see. I'm reminded of a child who does something wrong to the point of it that it hurts the father. Father never stops loving the kid. It's his kid. So here I am thinking about Judas, and he's looking up here and goes, Man, I'm like, I love you. What, what can I do? It's my kid. 
So I was telling Joy, I was like, here, I can just see Judas coming up to Jesus, and Jesus just looking at him. And I, like, if I was anybody's advice, they'd be like, dude, don't let that happen, man. This guy's betraying you. Da, da, da. What can I do, man? He's my kid. He's my kid. I love him. He's going to betray you. I know. That never stops me from loving him. Man, if this isn't a moment where we are taught how to love our enemies, if, we, if this isn't a moment where we recognize that Judas is just as much a creation of God as we are, if this isn't that moment, I don't know what it is. It's like in this moment, it's almost the same moment for Peter and the rooster crowing out on the beach. You know, where Peter's already betrayed Jesus by denying him three times, and he's sitting out on the beach, and he says, listen, where, you know, you know, take care of my sheep. And he's like, well, I keep saying this like three times. You said it now, right? And, and, and that whole thing where he affirms him up so that he become the ministry. In this moment, I'm thinking this is the best Jesus can really do with Judas. I know you're betraying me, but I'm going to love you to the end, Judas. You'll have made your choice, but I'm going to love you to the end. And I think this is how we're supposed to love the person who's Judas to us. I think this is how we're supposed to treat people who are Judas to us. And I think Judas exists also to show us that we're not far at any time, if not at certain points in our time, of becoming Judas. That's what he exists in the Gospels for. Judas is us. And no matter what we do, can I tell you, Jesus still wants your kiss. Even when you do things that aren't right with him. Jesus still loves you. Even when you betray him and you act like you don't know him, Jesus loves you. Jesus still would say, I'd take the kiss. I'll take a hug from your neck any day. No matter what you do to him, he still loves you. This is a kiss from his own creation. Yes, God allows you to make your choices, but your choices don't get to dictate how God loves you. Isn't that nice? And that's the best part of the whole thing. The best part of the whole thing is the kiss that leads to the betrayal because it shows you the attitude of Jesus. He, I mean, I just know that I would not be that way. Usually when somebody betrays me, I don't think of, I should probably just hug him. Oh, I think about a hug, but it's more like a full Nelson or a chokehold hug, you know. In Judas, we see ourselves. In the Judas kiss, we see the mercy and love and ultimately the gospel of Jesus, the God that loves us unconditionally. And God is hoping that we will choose to believe in him and not the voices in our head preaching the low self-esteem or the zero self-worth. In the kiss, we see a God who can still love us despite us. God, and that's, and that's not a new message for the Lord. That's just the New Testament message. That message also exists in the Old Testament through Samson. Samson, you probably shouldn't. You're not supposed to cut your hair. You're not supposed to go out in places where you drink. You're not supposed to... Uh, you're supposed to be clean, which means you can't touch any dead things. What does Samson do? He walks through vineyards, drinks wine, hangs out with prostitutes, uh, eats honey out of a dead lion carcass. By the way, who looks for sweet things and dead things? That's bizarre, right? I mean, it's horrible. He eventually gets his hair cut, but in the end, totally fulfills everything the prophetic word said about him. God uses us and loves us despite us. No matter how much we try to throw it all away. His love is always there. We see it in the Old Testament, and in Judas, we see it in the New Testament. 
He loves us despite us. Despite our dishonesty, despite our secrecy, and even despite our false persona. And in the end, we're left with an absolute. One thing that we can tell through this, no matter what, and we'll bring up the worship. Jesus sees you. Not the you you project, but the you you actually are. Not the you that I've met this morning, but the you that lies within the recesses of your mind. Those little thoughts that you've had on the road of rage that you don't tell anybody. Those secret thoughts, maybe lustful thoughts even, whatever. But God sees you. God sees you. God sees Judas. He sees it for what it is. And he still says, I love you. God sees you for what you are. Even if your spouse doesn't see it, your kids don't see it, your friends don't see it, Jesus sees it and still says, I love you. And so how do we, the key or the gospel part of this is how do we respond to something like this? How do we respond? We respond by saying, I repent. I confess. I love you, Lord. That's how we respond to the Lord in these moments. We all are guilty of becoming Judas. We all are. Nobody here is better than Judas. At some point, we've all betrayed him. At some point, we are Peter, denying even knowing. Maybe even cursing so that we don't sound like we're Christian. You know, I, so many examples there. But at some point, we all become Judas. And here's the thing, man. Jesus is still sitting there. Come. And we go right up to Jesus and we hug him like there's nothing wrong. And you wonder, like, I know some of us, man, we've been in church long enough. We know those people that come in and we think they're fake, man. They've been in here 20 years. They are the meanest people in this place. You know? Like, you've been to church with somebody like that. Like, I don't know. Like, I've been to church where people were like, like, how are these people still in here? (laughs) And I'm like, because Jesus loves them. Who else can love a mean old person like that? Come on. Right? By the way, I'm reminded I'm not better. That's what Judas does. Reminds you that you're not better. You just have, you might have some different moments. But there are moments where I'm the mean one. And there are moments where I'm the nice one. And there are moments where I'm the dishonest one. There are moments where I'm the truthful one. There's all these moments. And it's all happening in my head. Why? Because there's this fight going on all the time between my flesh, what my flesh wants, what my heart wants, and what my soul needs. And this war is constantly happening. And here's the thing of it, man. I've got to give it to Jesus because, and I've got to admit, I can't fall into the trap of Judas. I got this. No, 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 no. I don't got this at all, Jesus. This is where the other disciples were managed to do well. Jesus, we don't got this. There's no way we could do that. Like Peter, I love his whole thing. When he gets to the end and he's there with the beach, he's like, there's no way I could do ministry now. If it isn't for the affirming of Jesus in that moment, Peter ain't going to lead the Acts 2 champion there. He's not going to be the Acts 2 champion. But my favorite part, Acts 1, when Peter says, and I love this because you got to know, like, this is ownership of all of it. Peter goes, Judas was one of us. So before you get the idea that somehow we were better, he was one of us. So that, by the way, think about this, all right? If Judas is one of them, the betrayer, the thief, right? He says he's one of us. He puts him in the same boat, not higher, not lower, equal apostle. All right? Judas was one of us. So now that when he preaches in Acts, repent, 
that the Son of God was killed. And when the, when the Pharisees take him up and they said, man, you're trying to heap this man's own blood on all of us. And Peter's like, yeah, I am. I'm trying to spray Jesus' blood everywhere. It'll save everything, right? I mean, like in Peter's, he's so dogmatic about it. Why do you think he's dogmatic about it? Because he's been Judas. You know why Judas is one of us? Because I'm the one that cursed and said I didn't even know him. What, Judas sold him out? You think it's different? I sold him out too at the cross when he looked at me in the eyes. That's why I love Peter. Peter said, Judas is one of us. Why? Because I'm not better. They took different roads though, didn't they? And here's the thing, guys. This is the story of Judas. There's a fork always there for you. Which will you choose? Will you lean to Jesus in that moment and be teachable in that moment and repent and come to Jesus and allow him to build you up? Or will you choose the route of Judas and self-hate yourself and self-loathe yourself and have zero self-worth to the point where you, you might not kill yourself physically, but you're killing yourself psychologically? Constantly believing the lie of the devil that you have some low self-worth. By the way, if God created you, it makes you so valuable. So anything less than that is a lie from the devil. Don't fall for it. We are Peter. We are Judas. We are John. We are Paul. Paul said he was the worst of the apostles. He was the worst. Paul, Paul said, I'm worse than Judas. And you know what? I am the worst, and you are the worst, and Jesus still wants a kiss from you too, and he still loves you, and he still wants you, and you have value, and you have worth to him. Remember Isaiah 53? We close with it Wednesday. Come on, worship. We close with it Wednesday. He takes a portion of what God gave him. And he decides that your worth, your intrinsic value is worth so much to him. I'm, he, if, G, if I'm Jesus, he says, God's giving me this portion. This is your value to me. I'm going to take a piece of this and hand it to you. It's mine to give, and I give it freely. I give it freely. This is yours. Man, take it. Don't turn it back. Don't get like Judas, well, I'm this and I'm this. Or like Peter, whoa, I did this. Or like Paul, well, I'm this bad and this bad. Listen, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. You have value. You have worth. Yeah, we're all like Judas in some way. But we're also filled with Jesus. Amen? Let's worship him this morning. Stand with us this morning. Lord, even though we are so unworthy, you are worthy. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this morning we bow before you. We are reminded of who we are in you. Even in those moments where we're broken and hurting and where we don't do the right thing, you always let us run back to you. And that's what we do this morning, Father. We run back to you. And we look at your open arms. Jesus, you are so wonderful.
always tell us, come on.